Lara Barrera, and welcome to the 15th episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, How a System Built on Stewardship Benefits the Environment and the Bottom Line, is being brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. If this is your first time joining us, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizer equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering complete dry and liquid fertilizer systems, Montag will help you reap the benefits of deep banding fertilizer, which can reduce your rates, increase your yields, and assist your stewardship goals. They also offer high-capacity auto-steer carts that help keep soil compaction under control by precisely following in the tracks of any implement. To learn more about their fertilizer solutions, visit www.montagmfg.com or call them today at 712-852-4572. On March 11, 1998, Seth Watkins' farm was hit with a severe blizzard. He and his cattle made it through, but it was something he never wanted to experience again. So this time, instead of asking how to deal with the problems caused by the blizzard, he asked himself, why am I working against Mother Nature and not with her? In this episode, Seth will explain how from that moment on, he went from a farm system focused on production to a system focused on stewardship and how that has paid off for the environment and his bottom line. In today's No Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing, we welcome Seth Watkins to talk about how he's using conservation to benefit his farm and his community. Thank you for having me here today. Um, I guess disclosure right up front, as you can see, uh, if you're here to learn a lot about the ins and outs of no-till farming, I'm a cow-calf producer that I'm glad to talk to any of you about that. I'm pretty good at it. The farming side is something I'm learning as I go. Um, If you have any technical questions, I'm going to refer you to my neighbor who's a really good no-till farmer that I hire to plant my corn. So let's get that out of the way right now. But anyway, what I'm really here today is to share the story of what happened when I switched my priority from a farming system focused on production to a system focused on stewardship. Uh, We've heard the word system used a lot today, and we all talk about building our systems, but something that's helped me is uh, actually applying, if you're going to have a system, you should apply the principles of what's known as systems thinking to what you're doing. And... uh, I gave a little background to help explain this, and and some of you might already know it, but let me just share this with you. Our food system is complex. How I farm and what I raise doesn't just affect me. Our decisions as farmers affect human health, our environment, our political system, and ultimately the very stability of our planet. As the forces of a growing, oops, sorry. As the forces of a growing population are placed on agriculture, It is critical that we understand the relationships between all aspects of our food system. Taking a systems thinking approach to problem solving can be a valuable tool in helping us make our farms more resilient and profitable. Now, systems thinking isn't always an easy subject because it involves thinking about what we're actually doing, which isn't always pleasant. And most of us have been raised as what's called a linear thinker. 
we've been taught to see a direct and obvious relationship between cause and effect. An example of a linear solution to low yield would be more fertilizer. A systems thinking approach teaches us that the relationship between a problem and its cause can be indirect and not always obvious. A systems thinking approach to low yield would be asked, why is my soil not more productive? This approach would offer solutions that involve understanding complex properties and processes, such as soil type and structure, organic matter, carbon-nitrogen ratios, and conservation practices. Asking why instead of how makes us really think about what we're doing and is the thinking that can lead to long-term, sustainable solutions with minimum unintended consequences. I think the best way for me to describe this is to just share a little story about a a friend of a friend. There was this banker, and um, anyway, he was having just terrible migraine headaches. They were awful. And he'd been to different people, and finally he goes to this neurologist, and the neurologist says, we're going to figure this out. Runs a series of tests, and he comes back, and he says, hey, I got good news and bad news. The banker says, give it to me. He says, well, I'm going to be able to solve your headaches. No problem. I've identified the problem. He says, that's great. What do we have to do? He said, well, the problem is that you've got your, your testicles are pushing against a nerve in your spinal cord, and that's sending a message giving you debilitating migraine headaches, but we're going to castrate you, and it's all going to be better. And I said, there's some problems. There's unintended consequences, you know, maybe depression, but we'll work through that. So they go through the procedure. He says, now come see me in a couple of weeks. Let's see how you're doing. And he comes back to see him and says, doc, the headaches are gone. Thank you so much. But he said, you know, I am, I am a little blue. And he said, well, I noticed you like fancy clothes. He said, there is a tailor down the street that's just incredible. And this guy is so good, he will guess your size before he measures you. And I said, you know, maybe buying a new suit will cheer you up. He says, that's a good idea. And he gets down, and the tailor's checking him out. And he says, oh, you know, 46 regular on the jacket. He says, wow. He says, your pants, you're a 37, 34. He says, how could you tell that? And size 13 shoes, and they work through, and they're almost done. And he says, oh, we got to get jockey shorts. And the tailor looks at him, he says, you need a 38. And the guy says, no, I got you there. He said, I wear a 36 for jockey shorts. And the tailor said, oh, sir, 36 is way too tight. It'll push your testicles against your spine and give you terrible migraine headaches. <laughs> and that, my friends, is why systems thinking for our problems is so important. So anyway, now that you're all awake, a little bit of a background, a little bit of background about my operation, Pinhook Farm. It was founded by my great-grandfather, James Shambaugh, in 1846. We're, we're located right, we're not huge, but we're located in the corner of three counties between Page, Taylor, and Adams County. Operations about 3,300 acres, of which my wife and I own about 450. Most of our ground is rented or on shares or managed. Um, of that, about 2,500 rotationally grazed pasture, 450 acres of corn. We've actually kind of given up on wheat. It should be corn, oats, and hay. Uh, and about 350 acres of CRP and other land where we've done restricted waterways and things like that, it adds up and that's set aside strictly for wildlife. Leads to our revenue sources, cattle, outfitting, land mitigation, USDA subsidy payments. I'm pretty big on saying I'm a farmer and I get money from the government. Uh, I think one of the things we'll talk about today though is if the good people are going to give us money, we should give them clean water and healthy soil in return. And my wife's great job as an early childhood special education teacher. Um, a little bit on our demographics, and, and this is where I start to talk about some of these issues. You know, poor systems wind up with negative unintended consequences. And when I look at this, I say, uh, these look like some of the symptoms. 
It was touched on earlier how diverse different regions are, and it's so true. Southern Iowa land isn't like the Des Moines lobe. We're, we're rugged, hilly land. Um, tends to be highly erodible. Soil loss of 10 to 20 tons an acre is not uncommon in the area I live. Uh, we do have lower CSRs than most of the state, but areas of good land. Like many of you, increasing uh, land is increasingly owned by non-farmers, absentee landlords, both minor absentee. High crop prices and policy have encouraged the clearing of, uh, of woodlands, farming of highly erodible land, and the reduction of pasture, which is very unfortunate. And severe weather events or climate change is a very real issue where we live. We kind of couple this cliff with our demographic right now. <laughs> We're seeing an aging population. We're seeing fewer and older farmers. Declining enrollment in our schools. Uh, Page County, and this is a biggie because this goes back to some of the things we do. It's that I can't prove it is, can't prove it isn't. Page County currently has the highest cancer rate in Iowa, and we have the 10th highest poverty rate in the state of Iowa. So, uh, increasing number of public school students receiving free and reduced lunch. 46 to 68 percent of the kids would be classified as food insecure in the districts we pay taxes to. Um, and once again, this goes back, if our food system's working, I don't think I'd see all those numbers. And the other thing I'm going to say is it's pretty exciting to talk about a bunch of no-till farmers because I think you're the people that are helping to make our food system work. And then finally, the big picture systems thinking, and I'm really jealous of Indiana now that I found out they have 1.1 million acres of cover crops. In Iowa, we only have about 400,000 acres. And we don't just export corn, soy, beef, pork, and eggs from Iowa. We're also the leading exporters of nitrogen and phosphorus that, as we know, are the leading causes of hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, Iowa has set a goal of voluntarily reducing our nutrient export by 45%. Um, I got to believe it's going to happen, but we'll see. And this is my story. So anyway, prior to 1998, I ran Pinnock Farm with a total focus on production. I listened to industry experts and farmed with the attitude that science, technology, and determination could conquer any challenge Mother Nature threw at me. And all the solutions made sense, sort of. Except sometimes I'd see things like a baby calf trying to nurse a muddy udder on like a cold March morning, and, and that never felt right. But then I'd attend a farmer meeting sponsored by a feed company or an agronomy company or the Farm Bureau, and I'd be reminded of how important it was for me to produce and feed the world. And these people had just given me a free meal and probably a free hat. Kind of shameful what I'd do for a hat. And I'd let the left side of my brain take over again and continue my focus on production. But in, on March 11th, 1998, we had a severe blizzard hit. And uh, I made it through, but it was something I never wanted the cows or the calves or myself to experience again. And instead of asking the experts how to deal with the problems caused by the, by the blizzard, I asked why am I working against Mother Nature instead of with her. And this is where I started. First thing I did, I made a very simple change to my, to my system. I changed my calving date from February 1st till April 1st. What it comes down to, all creatures deserve the right to express their natural instincts. Mother Nature has developed cows with a rumen so they can convert forage to protein. Their natural instinct is to graze and have their young when temp and daylight provide the right conditions for green up. When you do this, the result is lower stress. Lower stress leads to fewer calving problems and greater herd health. Some of it is also just like old high school chemistry. You can run your equipment and feed a cow in February and she's going to take X number more calories than she does in April. It's just that simple. Now these traits lead to a greater return on investment by lowering feed, 
labor, and health costs, and greater production due to fewer calving problems. Now, what I found out from this is Mother Nature really knows best. And then we just started adding to the system. The next place we became obsessed with was clean water. It's this simple. Clean water equals healthier, heavier cattle. But the ponds actually acted as a sink for nitrogen and help filter phosphorus and keep sediment out of our rivers. Finally, they're wonderful habitat for wild things. Then we moved into establishing legumes and integrated pest management in our pastures. Now, for those of you from Iowa, I'll try to fill everyone else in. In Iowa, we basically have two ways of creating nitrogen. One is to give an Egyptian company $500 million in tax credits in the name of economic development. Or you can go and seed pasture and your clover into your pastures and let Mother Nature take her course. And this is where the integrated pest management came into play. You see, clover doesn't like broadleaf herbicides, and I still use herbicides. You know, it doesn't mean I don't. But at 50 bucks an acre, I don't like it very well either. So utilizing integrated pest management saved money by reducing my chemical needs, but it wasn't just chemical savings. The clover has reduced my need for commercial nitrogen on our pastures, leading to healthier profits and a much healthier ecology. Another unforeseen benefit of clover and integrated pest management was that I noticed the more diverse my forage is, the better my cows perform. This has led me to believe there must be properties in many of the forbs and plants that the cows eat. If a cow eats it, maybe it's not a weed. Now this said, if it has thorns or stickers, I'll probably kill it. <clears throat> Moving on, we added rotational grazing. And, and this is kind of part of the journey. Now there are farmers out there that can basically mimic the migration of the bison. They'll move their cows every 12 to 24 hours, and this is amazing. Syst uh, a system is about continuous improvement. Where I'm at right now, we move the cows every five to seven days. The benefits I've seen from rotational grazing are greater forage production, greater carbon sequestration, and it has taught me that you really can do more with less. The majority of Iowa's pastures are actually overstocked and undergrazed. But like I said before, building a good system is a lifelong journey of continuous improvement. As you start to see the results and understand how the parts complement one another, it becomes infectious. And it wasn't long before I applied the same principles I was using with the cows to the hay and row crop part of the operation. This is where no-till farming came in, and this is also why my neighbor who has good equipment and good technology does my planting. Um, you know, the simple things that you all know. It reduces fossil fuel costs, it reduces runoff, restores microbial activity. But for our soils and our challenges, it took a little more. Um, the next step was we started working with our crop rotation, and we're continuing to tweak that. We still do have some soybean acres on a neighbor's place that we're renting, but basically everything goes to the cows. Starts out with corn silage, goes to forage barley for a cover crop, oats, and back to alfalfa. Learning a lot about oats. Um, one of the things is that we need more varieties, but I'm thankful for the ones we have. Moving on to the cover crops. Uh, I had to put that in because it's cool to seed with a helicopter, but we actually drill most of our cover crops behind the silage or behind the chopping. Anyway, I think I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Cover crops improve soil health. They increase organic matter. Um, one of the reasons I use the forage barley, I do try to minimize my chemical use. And uh, the forage barley winter kills, sometimes it's allowing me to bow out of the pre-emergence. Um, the downside to the forage barley is you don't have something green growing as soon as you would with a, with a rye crop. It's a trade-off, it's one I find is acceptable for now. 
The next practice we've looked at, and this is something I've learned, um, it doesn't always take a terrace to control erosion, and one of the issues with terraces, they're important and we use them, but they also aren't able to filter nitrogen, phosphorus, nutrients, sediment, um, and give a place for wildlife to live. So anyway, basically, STRIPS is a project that was developed at Iowa State, and it basically applies the practices of strategically placing prairie back on our row crop acres. The results are very impressive. STRIPS on 10% of a field can reduce runoff from sediment by 95%, phosphorus by 90%, nitrogen by 85%. They also increase habitat and wild species, birds, bees, and plants. Often, strips can be placed on land that isn't productive, and this is one of the things, AgSolver is a tool we use some to identify our non-producing acres. You can farm fewer acres and increase the revenue of any given farm uh, by identifying what you should not be farming. And if you really had a trifecta, you can put the acres that are not producing into CRP with something like strips. You can see a difference as high as $700 an acre, depending on the CRP program. We'll rejoin Seth in a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizer equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Did you know that many universities have found you can reduce the amount of phosphorus and potassium you apply by up to a third if you ban your fertilizer versus broadcasting it? Recent studies have also shown that banning phosphorus and potassium can increase yield. In fact, University of Illinois plant pathologist Fred Bilo found that banding phosphorus resulted in a corn yield increase of 14 bushels per acre. And banding fertilizer also helps prevent nutrient loss to the environment. To learn how you can start deep banding your fertilizer, visit Montag Manufacturing at www.montagmfg.com or give them a call at 712-852-4572. At the beginning of Seth's presentation, he explained that if a grower with low yields wanted to take a systems approach to increasing his yields, he would ask, why isn't my soil more productive? If you'd like to learn how you can increase your soil productivity and your yields, check out our special report, The Secrets of Soil Biology, How to Make it the Engine for a More Profitable No-Till Operation. In this 40-page report, you'll learn how to rejuvenate a farm with better soil biology, how soil livestock can increase no-till production, and more. For more information or to order the report, visit notillfarmer.com slash soilbiologyreport. Enter the special code SOIL30 at checkout and you'll save 30% on us. That's S-O-I-L-3-0 in all caps. Now let's get back to Seth, who's going to talk about the results he's seen from changing a system and the monetary value of those results. Ag Solver is a program based out of Ames. They'll come in and do soil mapping. They go back through historic data. They can work with some of the data you have on your, you know, with your yield data. And they're going to come through and monetize those, those pieces in red that we'd ordinarily put more inputs on that doesn't help. They'll monetize that for you and come through and say, you're, you are better off not farming this because it's losing you $200, $300, $400 an acre after you harvest it. And then the other thing that's interesting, it'll also come through on your better land. If you want to increase inputs on your better land, it gives you that option. Or if you want to just simply 
put it in CRP. They've got a good team that'll work with anyone that's interested. But you know, we're talking five to 10% of a given field, which sounds like a lot, but at the end of it, it's land that, like those wet areas where the field, where the water drains, you don't want to mess with farming that anyway. So I've been pretty excited. The other thing is they're, they're not expensive to put in, a couple hundred bucks an acre, and you know, versus a terrace. A, and, and I don't want to knock terraces. I've got a dozer, I love it, but use all your tools is, is what I'm saying. Um, and then at the end, for me, we closed the loop. Uh, you know, the golden rule of agronomy, if you take something off, you put something back on. So the cows just kind of clean up everything I do and help me solve some of my mistakes, and that's all, a, that's all a good thing. So what are the results? Well, what we've seen, and I tried to monetize this, basically by switching over and using more clover, by grazing the covered crops, which extended my grazing, by going to integrated pest management, it worked out to about a $200 savings per cow over my old system. Next area, this gets back to why I say it's so important to let animals uh, express their natural in instinct. And I'm sorry, I updated this. The numbers are right, it's at 146. The last time I gave this talk, cows were at buck 90. It's kind of like the corn market. Um, anyway, long story short, what happened when the cows weren't as stressed out, when they were happier, I wound up seeing my percent of calves weaned per cow exposed increase by 8%. So at the end of the day, that gave me a $92 per cow advantage. So doing the right thing actually pays. I don't like to get into the crop input costs. I'm gonna show you what I feel like I've saved, which is about 40 bucks an acre on tillage. Uh, we're slowly reducing our nitrogen needs. I think I could get it lower than that, but I don't have the guts to yet. Um, but we're seeing about an $80 an acre savings. The biggie for me, where I have most of my stuff custom done with the cover crops, we've got a more resilient system, so I can get people in to get my work done when they can't do someone else's. So it's, for a cow guy that has to hire his stuff out, there's my argument. I don't farm a lot of acres, but that's been beneficial to me. And it's not just economic benefits. More birds, more pollinators, more wildlife, and that led me to get into the outfitting business and the land, land mitigation credits. So why does this work? Um, and I'm gonna back up before we jump to that. I, when I decided to do this, I'd just gotten to a point that I didn't feel right about what I was doing. I couldn't sleep at night. And I made the decision that I was gonna change whether I went broke or not. I didn't care. I was younger and I didn't care. But the wonderful thing that happened is that I actually started making more money and 15, 20 years later, I'm still here, and I felt like I should be able to explain why it worked or it really is meaningless. So over the last 20 years, I've gained some insight, and fortunately, a really sharp uh, ranch manager named Burke Tiekert summed it up pretty well for me. And he says that there are three keys to a successful farm and ranch business. You have to be profitable, you have to be sustainable, and you have to be socially responsible. And the first one's simple. There's no sustainability without profit. We all know that. The next one gets a little more interesting. Farms are, farm to be sustainable, farms have to be ecologically sound. Basically what we're saying is farms are living systems. Living systems are sustained by natural resources, specifically soil, sunlight, rainfall, and our own ingenuity. Living systems cannot be sustained by finite resources, and I'll show you why. But when I talk about finite resources, I'm talking about oil and iron, equipment. 
because over time, the costs of finite resources exceed the cost of the products we produce. So let me show you a little data that I've put together, and, and it doesn't mean we're always going to have tractors, we're going to use them. Depends on how much you use them. So I started searching this, and I started looking back. This is the cost of crude oil per barrel since 1953. More important, we get into when I really started farming in 94. It's increased if you hit a trajectory of about 6% on average shooting across. And some people say, well, it's down to 50. But if you follow the futures, you see oil steadily ticking back up. And for some people say, well, maybe we haven't hit peak oil. I don't know if we have or not. My brother was an executive in the oil business. The one thing I know very well is it costs a lot more to get it out of the ground than it used to. These are factors in our, in our profitability. Then we come into equipment. And this one was really interesting also. So I used a, I used a, John, a 1972 4020 as my standard. I thought I had to find something to find a comparable rate. And when I backed up here to a G, moved to a 70, 720, 730, 4010, 4020, 4230, up to a 6125. Now, the other component that's falling in on both of these is technology. And I, I like technology, but I, that's a whole nother talk. Um, but long story short, there's your trajectory, which is very close to oil. It's about 55 to 6% increase per year. So then I thought, how do I compare this to crop prices? Because the first thing people are going to do is say, well, crop prices have been fairly flat. We know that. But our yields have gone up, so our revenue per acre is higher. So be careful with this one. So I moved back, and sure enough, Iowa State had great data showing the cost of production versus the average price. And as you get into this, you see what's happening. And this is what happens when we build systems that are reliant on finite resources. So how are we solving this? Because most of us are still here and in business. Now, as no-tillers and some of us, we know there's advantages to reducing our reliance on this. But I'm talking about the industry in general. How is our industry solving this problem? We solve this problem with policy that wastes finite resources, destroys natural resources, and betrays the US citizens who support us, my opinion. Poor policy destroys ingenuity. This is the ARC payment rate for corn in 2015. Um, first of all, I didn't even know we raised corn in some of these places. And uh, as I looked at it further, I was really worried because I didn't hear the farm groups being concerned because we were getting the money, they were concerned that one county didn't get as much as the other. Now, I think we've got to think of others on this. And the people that fund us, the taxpayers, they haven't seen a raise in 10 years. So going back on this, going back to my comment on how policy destroys ingenuity, when prices fell, our solution was to use more finite resources to raise more corn to expect the US taxpayers to sustain our farms with entitlements. 150 years of linear thinking has got us increased resource use and cost, and it's disincentivized investment in soil, land, and overall environmental health. Now, this goes back to what I think is the most important of all. Anytime I'm with a group of farmers, I hear the word that we're overregulated and there's too much or overreach. Now, once again, having a brother in the oil business, I'll let you in on a little secret. We're not very regulated, and I'd really like to keep it that way. And what I've, why I point this out is, I guess I'll share a personal experience, but I also want to talk about good businesses listen to their customers. So anyway, these are my kids when they're little. That's my son, Spencer, and my daughter, Tatum. Spencer was born with a pretty rare syndrome called 49XY, and it involves cognitive delays and 
low muscle tone and you know speech issues, things like that, all the things that go with it. And uh, anyway, me being a cow guy and our family mantra has always been kind of trust in God but keep your powder dry, we decided that before we had another child, we'd go through full genetic, genetic screening. And, and it all came back fine. And uh, along came Miss Tatum. Now Tatum started out as a twin, but we lost one during the pregnancy. It's called monoamniotic monochorionic twinning. It's pretty, uh, pretty rare, but it once again involves the division of, of cells. And uh, she had what's called an emphalocele. Her little colon had had, her, when we lost the one twin, her colon wasn't able to form properly. Now, as I was mating, my wife had to have a C-section. She was out cold, and I was meeting with the, with the surgery team that day, and they were reviewing the file, and they looked at this, and they said, you know, we've, we know where you live, we know your family history, your genetic history. Two kids, none, none of this makes any sense to us. And the nurse looked right at me, and she said, where do you get your water? So anyway, thanks to some brilliant medical teams, Tatum's doing great, and my life is much richer for the experiences I've had raising Spencer. But here's the reality. All birth defects have a cause, and it's usually endocrine disruption. Now, this can just happen, but uh, oftentimes it also occurs from chemicals in our environment. Chemicals I use. You know, I'm not saying this isn't pointing fingers. This is just saying these are tools we use in our farming systems. Um, atrazine is a proven endocrine disruptor. Glyphosate and some of its ingredients and nitrogen are suspected to be. And uh, the reality is I'll never be able to prove if any of these products caused my children's health problems. But I'll never be able to prove that they didn't either. Now, what I do know is I want to help build a food system where no family ever has to hear the question, where do you get your water again? So moving on, that's my personal story. But moving on, I'm a businessman, like all of you. And I said this before. The fact is, businesses that don't listen to their customers don't stay in business. Now for me, if you uh, breathe air, drink water, or eat beef, we're connected in some way, and I should probably listen to what you want. So going through, what are the consumer's ten, top 10 priorities for agricultural policy and programs? Number one, drinking water quality. Number two, water quality for aquatic life rural job opportunities, flood control, water quality for recreation, game wildlife habitat, sequestering carbon, tourism opportunities, crop production, and, and being in the outfit, outfitting business, I know why number 10 is last. Non-game wildlife habitat is because bird watchers are cheap, cheap, cheap. Anyway, the cool thing is that Conservation agriculture systems offer long-term sustainable solutions to all of these issues and will maintain our profitability and resilience. And at the end of the day, this is what it's really all about. It's about stewardship, the careful care and management of something that is trusted to us. What's this mean? Do no harm, not to people or the land. Keeping our soil and nutrients on our farms. Only allowing clean and safe water to walk not run off of our farms. And at the end of our lives, kind of like my mom and dad there, being able to say I left it better than I found it. Our role as farmers isn't to produce. Our purpose as farmers is to take care of the land. And when we do this properly, production falls into place and the land takes care of all of us. That's it, thank you.
Thank you to Seth Watkins for talking about the transitions he's made on his farm and how a stewardship approach to farming pays off. If you'd like to view any of the PowerPoint slides he presented at the conference, go to notillfarmer.com and click on podcasts under the resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where the presentation will be available. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest No-Till Farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Seth Watkins, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Laura Barrera. Thanks for listening.